a prayer before study. Ineffable creator, who from the treasures of your wisdom have established three hierarchies of angels, have arrayed them in marvelous order above the fiery heavens, and have marshaled the regions of the universe with such artful skill. You are proclaimed the true font of light and wisdom, and the primal origin raised high beyond all things. Pour forth a ray of your brightness into the darkened places of my mind. Disperse from my soul the twofold darkness into which I was born, sin and ignorance. You make eloquent the tongues of infants. Refine my speech and pour forth upon my lips the goodness of your blessing. Grant to me keenness of mind, capacity to remember, skill in learning, subtlety to interpret, and eloquence in speech. May you guide the beginning of my work, direct its progress, and bring it to completion. You who are true God and true man, who live and reign, world without end. Welcome to Old Books of Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist scholar and child wrangler. We are on episode six of an eight-episode series on the brilliant contemplative writer Julian of Norwich. She was an anchorite, walled into a cell in a church in 14th century England, who has left us this theologically compelling account of a set of visions she received as a 30-year-old woman. First things first. In this section, Julian sees and interprets a full misty, very mysterious, even fuzzy, showing about a lord and a servant. I think this section of reading is by far the toughest part of Revelations of Divine Love. In classes I've taken in graduate school, we've spent two weeks on chapters 51 and 52 alone. And it should be noted, this whole section doesn't appear in her earlier version of her Book of Showings. If you recall, there's an earlier version of this work. We're reading her updated, expanded, revised version. Therefore, we know that this is one of the parts she meditated upon for literal decades before writing it down. So prepare yourself for a little bit of brain work in this passage. It's okay if you just don't get it. Honestly, I find it incredibly challenging, and I've read this passage many, many times at this point. It's also appropriate here to stop and remind ourselves of how to read old and difficult literature for a minute. I begin this podcast in my first episode with a quote from C.S. Lewis that's worth remembering for a minute. Lewis argues that old books speak to us in all their errors and truths, and help us to see errors and truth about our own time and place. Let's take Lewis's challenge anew and let this difficult passage speak to us out of its own time and place. It can be very easy when reading something theologically and historically challenging like this work to quickly jump to, yes, I agree with this, or no, I do not agree with this. This is bad or outdated or false. It's always important to read with the end goal of truth in mind, but let the writing speak to you on its own terms 
and open yourself up to be challenged by it. And this can take some time. How can Julian's full misty showing of a Lord and servant speak to us right now? This difficult showing stems out of her urgent, almost despairing question, how God looks on us in our sin. What does it mean that we are sinners and yet God does not blame us? Now, if you remember the last podcast episode, this is a question we've been pursuing for some time now. Something else important about this section, this vision is shown doubly, as she calls it, to Julian, meaning both that she sees it twice, once bodily and once spiritually, and that she interprets multiple meanings therein. So let's hold that close as we think about this passage. Julian first sees a Lord sitting in state. A servant looks on, ready to do his Lord's will. The Lord sends him off. The servant runs at great speed, desiring to do his Lord's will. Then the servant falls into a pit, a slade, as Julian calls it, and suffers great pain in his fall. He becomes bruised and clumsy, weak in his reason and his body, blind and forgetful of love, lonely and unable to raise himself from the pit. Julian notes that in his woundedness, he pays heed to his own feelings. He's unable to look on the Lord, focusing instead so intently on his distress. He meekly suffers this woe. Extra strangely, the only cause of his falling was his goodwill and great desire. That's in chapter 51. The Lord looks on him with double aspect, meekly and mildly with great compassion for his servant's pain, and with rejoicing as he contemplates the grace and gift he will give his servant. The Lord will reward his servant in his pain for his desire to serve. This servant is Adam, and his fall is the fall. This is one interpretation of this vision. Perhaps the most difficult part of this vision is that Adam's fall does not come from a willful act of disobedience in Julian's sight. The servant desires to do his Lord's will all along. And the greater part of his suffering comes from his bruising and forgetfulness of the Lord's presence as he lays in the pit of his fall. Honestly, I don't know what to do with that. If you are a theologian or somebody who's thought a lot about this, do you have any thoughts? I'd be very interested to hear them. I've heard that this reading of the fall is closer to the Greek Orthodox tradition of understanding sin, but I haven't looked into it myself. This willingness is also part of the doubleness of Julian's vision, as we will discuss below, part of the aspect of Jesus, but I find it challenging nonetheless. In 20 years and more of meditation, Julian tells us she tried to carefully look at every single detail of her showing. This is what the Lord had commanded her, pay attention to every single detail. She focuses on the limitations of Adam's knowledge, and thereby our knowledge, in our suffering. She sees that 
pain blames and punishes, and the Lord comforts, longing to bring us to be with him. Moreover, she sees that the servant, strangely, has the same amount of love for the Lord as the Lord has for him. And she begins to wonder where the servant came from. She realizes that the servant is Adam, all humanity, but also the second person of the Trinity, the Son. While Adam fell from life into death, the Son fell with Adam into the womb of Mary. And as she writes, That was to excuse Adam from blame in heaven and on earth. And powerfully, he brought him out of hell. Chapter 51 Jesus' sojourn in the pit is his incarnation, his passion, and his bodily suffering, and his journey into hell and resurrection. Julian ends with the change in the servant's clothing. From rags, he has now become richly clothed with a precious crown on his head, not standing on the left like a laborer, but sitting at the Lord's right hand in peace. From this showing, Julian concludes that we are so much more closely intertwined with Christ, even in our will, than we know. Also, fascinatingly, she doesn't completely abandon the language of blame. Chapter 52 ends, And in this, our good Lord showed not only that we are excused, but also the honorable nobility to which he will bring us, turning all our blame into endless honor. There's a ton here to digest, but I want to focus on the doubleness of this showing as a particularly helpful clue for us. Julian sees this vision in multiple ways. The servant as Adam, as all of us in our fall, and as Christ. As humans, Our lives are bound and structured by time. We experience the fall and the incarnation, both in historical time and in the narratives we tell, in separate moments. Adam fell earlier in the way that we experience time than than the word became flesh, just like we experience history. We read it this way. We experience life and language itself as a succession of moments reacting to each prior moment. God, outside of the constraints of time, doesn't exist in this way. Julian's showing blasts this experience of time away to briefly and wondrously consider the relationship between the fall and the incarnation without the mediation of human lived time. Adam falls into sin, The second person of the Trinity falls into Mary's womb, the weakness and pain of the body, and ultimately the crucifixion. The flesh is never without the incarnation. This is how she is able to argue that God bears us no blame, because his excusing of our sin is simultaneous to the sin itself. God is not reactive to us in that his loving actions are dependent on our feeble workings. His love is without beginning. His love exists outside of time. We are held so much more closely in God's love and his gift of life than we realize. All her talk on the soul after the Lord and servant showing, and she 
really gets into some interesting discussions on the soul that I don't really have time for here, is meant to emphasize this extreme closeness of our soul to God. The chapters immediately following this complex, difficult showing highlight this closeness above all else. She even says that there's a part of our soul eternally held in God that has never consented to sin. It's easy for us to argue that Julian perhaps dismisses or downgrades sin here, though I personally would disagree, as she vehemently argues for our need to hate it and recognize its deadly consequences in our actions and our pain. It's easy to read Julian as a proto-liberal Protestant, a nice 21st century person like us, who simply downgrades sin or the consequences of individual action and will. I've seen many a happy literary critic and eager divinity school student do this very reading. It makes sense to us. Today, we don't really talk about sin all that much. Julian strikes us as perhaps less revolutionary or more close to the edge of bland modernity than she should. Let's imagine ourselves as medieval parishioners during Lent 650 years ago. Recall from earlier sections the extremely important sacrament of penance. Back to penance. (laughs) We've discussed this a lot, but it's so central. Penance in the medieval church was a different ballgame than penance in the Roman Catholic Church today. Let's review the steps of penance widely known to medieval Christians. Contrition, or regret for your sins. Confession to your parish priest. Absolution. And satisfaction or restitution. Pick your sin. Maybe you committed the sin of wrath by quarreling with a neighbor, or lust by sleeping with someone outside of marriage, or greed by habitually cheating your Lord out of contributing the amount of grain you owe from the little plot you lease from him. You mentally recognize and repent of the sin, either before or during confessing it to your parish priest. Then your parish priest tells you, you are absolved. Te absolvo, that your specific sin is forgiven. But you don't just walk away feeling relieved and hoping no one overheard you confess. The priest then assigns you a task for restitution, depending on the sin itself, repaying the person you stole from, apologizing and giving a kiss of peace to the friend with whom you fought, taking a pilgrimage to a nearby shrine in repentance of your adultery. This is one of the reasons that so many avoided sharing their sins. But if you didn't share your sins, you risked much worse, according to the doctrines of the medieval church. Sin had more than just its obvious consequences of hardening hearts. Common medieval teaching stated that if you did not complete a full confession, the confession itself, you were in direct danger of hell if you had committed a mortal sin. You were barred from taking the Eucharist. If you did take it knowingly or unknowingly in your unworthiness, you would be punished by hellfire or, best case scenario, a longer time in purgatory. These consequences led to other attitudes towards sin. Many medieval people were caught between the public shame of exposure and even more so the terror of not giving a true confession and not receiving absolution. On the opposite end, Cautionary tales are told by medieval preachers of those who thought they could live as they pleased, just delay their confessions until the ends of their lives, 
at which point they would receive absolution and die just fine. In numerous sermons of the time, preachers cautioned how these kinds of sinners often ended up in hell if they died unexpectedly and were unable to repent in time. Julian notes both of these temptations in thinking about sin. She labels them despair and recklessness and considers them the two most dangerous temptations to sin, or as she calls it, unknowing of God's love. Interestingly, Julian feels that it is our attitude towards and understanding of our sins, not necessarily the sins themselves, that is most dangerous and threatening to our relationship with the Lord. Our sin is technically blameworthy. We know this because we live in time. We recognize our weakness in our living and our lack of knowledge. In the pit, initially, when she's only seeing the Adam version of the servant, the servant looks only to himself. He's forgotten who he is. Julian argues that there are two beholdings of ourselves, two ways to understand our sin in relationship with God. The beholding of man and the beholding of God. It properly belongs to us to meekly accuse ourselves, to know and acknowledge our need for God and our continual sinning through our blindness. It properly belongs to God to excuse us and love us endlessly. Julian doesn't dismiss the importance of confession and acknowledging our sin. In fact, she reinforces it. It belongs to us to know ourselves in our weakness. It belongs to us even more to love God. However, it belongs even more to God to love us and know us fully because we are enclosed in Him as a result of first our creation and second our incarnation or God's incarnation, Jesus falling into the pit with us. The showing of the Lord and servant is meant to help her hold together how sin is fitting and all shall be well. Julian begins to understand that there was not ever a moment when Jesus was not with us in the pit, closer than our pain or sin itself. If you're still struggling to understand or follow some of the complex concepts in this passage, consider it a gloss on chapter 2 of Philippians in the New Testament. The suffering servant of Philippians 2 is well known by many readers of the Bible, but I thought I'd present it to you in Middle English to help make it fresh again and highlight the parallels between Julian's words and this passage more strongly. Therefore, if any comfort is in Christ, any solace of charity, any fellowship of spirit, if any inwardness of mercy doing, fill ye my joy that ye understand the same thing and have the same charity of one will and feel the same thing. Nothing by strife, neither by vainglory, but in meekness, deeming each other to be higher than himself not beholding each by himself what things be his own, but those things that be of other men. And feel ye this thing in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, which, when he was in the form of God, deemed not raven, 
that he himself were even to God equal to God. But he meeked himself, taking the form of a servant, and was made into the likeness of men, and in habit was found as a man. He meeked himself and was made obedient to the death, yea, to the death of the cross, for which thing God enhanced him and gave to him a name that is above all name, that in the name of Jesus each knee be bowed of heavenly things and of earthly things and of hells, and each tongue acknowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ is in the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my most dear worthy brethren, as evermore ye have obeyed, not in my presence only, but much more now in mine absence, work ye with dread and trembling your health. For it is God that worketh in you, both to will and to perform for good will. So that's the Middle English version of part of Philippians 2. And there's a lot there to mull over. I encourage you to rewind and listen to it again, maybe, and see what stands out to you. Two parallels with Julian's text particularly challenge me. Julian repeatedly mentions a reward for the servant's sufferings. I don't know how you feel about this, but I know for me, it makes me feel pretty uncomfortable as it makes suffering seem transactional. Julian, unlike me, is encouraged, deeply encouraged by that thought of future reward for pain. Philippians 2 also considers the reward, or in Middle English, enhancing, of Jesus. If I'm following my own advice and Lewis's advice about reading old books, my strong reaction should make me pause to meditate further on why I feel so uncomfortable about this way of thinking about suffering. The second thing that challenges me is the very end, which I tend to skip when I read in modern English, and it stands out when I read it in middle English. Working out your own faith, and then knowing it is actually God that worketh in you, both to will and to act. Julian's Lord and Servant probes this simultaneous work through its vision of both Adam and Christ in the fall. This is something I'm still thinking about as well. Thanks for joining me in this very tricky, complex section. I'd be delighted to hear your thoughts on it, either through my email at oldbookswithgrace at gmail.com or through the blog, oldbookswithgrace.com. And you can check out the text to this podcast there. I know I'm a highly visual person and it helps me a lot to see things written down rather than hear them. So if you're like that, you can go look at that. Next week, we'll cover my absolute favorite part of Julian's writing section where she talks about Jesus as our mother. So stay tuned. It'll be a great refresh from the rigors of this Lord and servant sequence. Thanks again for joining me.